breaking news at this hour, K-Poo-Poo News, Poo on Your Side, has obtained what appears to be the original recorded dictation of a controversial unsigned editorial that ran in the Spokesman Review over the weekend. The editorial has caused quite an uproar since its publication, with people across Spokane demanding to know who wrote it. The recording appears to give some insight into exactly that question. Joining me now is K-Poo-Poo rhetorical play-by-play analyst Luke Baumgarten. Great to have you, Luke. Happy to be here, Bob. Great! Luke's gonna help us call the balls and strikes on this controversial essay. It's been clanging around diabolically in my head all week, Bob. I can't wait to actually hear it. Then let's get right to it. Again, this is a K-Poo-Poo exclusive coming to you exclusively from K-Poo-Poo News. Let's listen. Ms. McGillicuddy, I've... Is this on? I can't... ah. Damn it. Ah, damn it, I can't understand this technology, this phonographic technology. Ah, well, hmm, yes, okay, well, let's just go. Ms. McGillicuddy, I've been inspired to craft an editorial for the review this week uh, in light of uh, current events. So please uh, transcribe this with all due haste and uh, send it to my friends at the uh, editorial board, <laughs> of which I am the only member. <laughs> Okay, now then. Do re mi do. Editorial title, Washington must restart its economy soon. During the first weeks of the COVID-19 outbreak, America focused on saving lives and preventing, <coughs> preventing, preventing the disease from spreading at all costs. Now that noble sentiment must give way to the cold calculus of balancing one harm against another. How many sick and dead Washingtonians will people accept to end a catastrophic economic shutdown? Question mark. The answer isn't one million, but it also shouldn't be zero, or nearly so. Well, Bob, that's a bold opening salvo, advocating for the deaths of an indeterminate number of fellow citizens and potential newspaper subscribers. Let's see if he can keep this pace up. State leaders are already doing risk-based analyses. Governor Jay Inslee did not forbid residents from shopping for gardening supplies as Michigan's governor did. He did, however, go further than Oregon by ordering golf courses closed. Each governor decides what risks are appropriate for his or her state. This is a pretty innocuous point it's hard to argue with. Look for him to follow it up with something absolutely bonkers. If saving lives were a singular, unassailable goal, then the country would shut down annually to prevent spread of flu, which has claimed up to 62,000 lives this season, more than the novel coronavirus. There you go, Bob. That's what we call a straw man argument. It's technically a logical fallacy, but it's good for making dumb people think you're smart. If the economic impact didn't matter... Uh, <laughs> let's take that again, Miss Moneypenny. I mean Miss Penny Farthing. I mean Miss McGillicuddy. Whatever your name is. If the economic impact didn't matter, America would outlaw motor vehicles that kill more than 30,000 people per annum and injure about 3 million. And now he's comparing apples to oranges, which generally happens when your first example sucks and you can't think of a second. Inslee and President Donald Trump last week announced frameworks for reopening the economy. What was most striking about their respective plans was how well they aligned. Well, Bob, now he's talking about Trump and Inslee in the same sentence. I'm going to be looking for an appeal to bipartisanship coming up any second now. Broadly, broadly, I say, broadly. The president recommends that states see a decline in documented cases over a couple of weeks and ensure that hospitals can treat all patients before they start a phased reopening. Testing is critical. No, what? Testing is a critical component to both. 
States must be able to identify who has the virus so that they can be isolated to prevent them from transmitting it to others. Federal and state governments must have a hand in expanding testing availability. Spokane has made good progress with this. Uh, says who? Contact tracing with adequate privacy protections needs to be implemented too, so that people know if they've been exposed and can quickly turn to testing or self-isolation for peace of mind and the community's health. The United States might look to South Korea for guidance. There, aggressive testing, contact tracing, and social intervention bent the disease curve much more rapidly than here, and with less dire economic consequences. Uh, Subheadline: economic health. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. These newly unemployed are disproportionately low-income Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. Notice how he deftly tiptoes around the structural factors for why people live paycheck to paycheck, Bob, including roughly four decades of neoliberal policies that have absolutely gutted the social safety net. That's just the veteran footwork of somebody who's spent a lifetime as an instrument and mouthpiece for capital. Or from communities of color. I knew a colored man once. No, strike that, strike that. Just leave that out. The sooner they can return to work, the less devastating the effect on their lives. Suicide and domestic violence rates increase during hard times. Underline hard times there. Putting the economy on the path to recovery, therefore, is a humanitarian imperative. Ooh, it's getting exciting now, Bob. He's using a humanitarian pretext to actually put people in greater danger so that a wealthy elite can continue enriching themselves off the blood and labor of people who are already exploited. We call this the Operation Iraqi Freedom Strategy for obvious reasons. Not something that can wait 12 to 18 months for a vaccine to become widely available. Facing steep revenue shortfalls, Inslee and other governors are agitating for federal bailouts. Yet the U.S. government does not have bottomless pockets at a time when the nation already has record debt and deficits. Ooh, he's getting cocky now, Bob, hoping we'll all conveniently forget the government just spent $3 trillion bailing out big business. It is not wise to risk the wealth and strength of the entire nation on a relatively small number of lives that statistically tend to be older and have pre-existing conditions. Agree with him wholeheartedly here, Bob. That's why we need to tax the shit out of rich people. As Inslee looks at phased reopening, elective medical procedures should be a top priority. Today's elective surgery is tomorrow's much more expensive critical surgery. Ah yes, that time-honored lifesaver, the elective surgery. I remember fondly the time I got a nose job to avoid a heart valve transplant later. Construction, manufacturing, and agriculture also should be among the early industries to restart. Then the governor should turn to businesses that have highly manageable environments from a transmission standpoint. I can hardly wait to hear what he considers highly manageable environments, Bob. I'm sure it won't be self-serving at all. Shopping centers, theaters, and restaurants could adopt occupancy, distancing, and masking strategies to minimize chances of transmission. This is just an example I'm pulling out of the air. It has nothing to do with the fact that I own a mall in the center of downtown. Well, leave that part out. Leave that part out. Maybe they will need to check for symptoms like fever at the door. All right, let's pause and let this sink in. We just heard the people he says he's concerned about live paycheck to paycheck. That probably also means they don't have great health insurance, if they have health insurance at all. And if the situation they live in is really dire, it might mean they're the head of a household, providing for more people than just themselves, maybe children, maybe elderly parents. So you might think you would be advocating to just continue with government funding to keep these people safe and healthy, but he's doing the exact opposite. He's saying we should give them forehead thermometers and put them on the front lines so they face the absolute brunt of the world opening back up. Also note, there's no mention of making sure these workers have adequate protective gear. It's almost as if they're not his real concern in the first place, Bob. New paragraph. 
The governor should think locally, too. Crowded King County might need to stay closed, but that shouldn't prevent other parts of the state where the outbreak is much better contained from reopening. Likewise, Inslee shouldn't let Oregon and California dictate Washington's approach, despite his <laughs> West Coast team-up. Yeah, because if there's one thing we need to respond to a threat that ignores all borders, uh, foreign, domestic, and uh, conceptual, it's rugged individualism. Washington has done a good job of rallying to stem the tide of the pandemic. Now Inslee should unveil solid rules for getting people back to work and a recovery that leads to a soft landing for hundreds of thousands of unemployed Washingtonians while still providing protections for vulnerable victims. With the pressure off saving lives, we now need real focus on saving livelihoods. All right, there. I think that's it. I think it's perfect. Send it. Uh, just as dictated uh, with those uh, few redactions uh, that I said in line intact. Miss Moneypenny or Penny Farthing or McGillicuddy, whatever your name is. And uh, make sure to sign it with my full name. Full name, Stacy William F. Buckley, Ayn Rand, Caligula, Cowles. No, on second thought, I want it to be anonymous. Sign it anonymously. I don't want the people with pitchforks knowing who wrote it. <clears throat> now get this to the review post-haste. Whatever your name is. That was an incredible document of our times. It certainly was something, Bob. Well, thank you so much for your insights today, Luke. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 3, Extra Extra Bad Take. Man, I really gotta stop doing these 10 minute cold opens, but that one was uh, kind of fun, you know? You get one that's super dark, and then, you know, a couple days later, you come back with the, the high heat, the real funny stuff. And I just wanna take a second to note that that was intended to be funny. It was intended as satire purely. I'm not making any claims of fact about, you know, a given newspaper publisher, the way he dictates his column writing, uh, what his middle name or names may or may not be. This was all just jokes, all goofs, all spoofs and goofs. There's actually a lot we don't know about the editorial, and that's part of what makes it problematic. But before we dive in, I wanted to just lay a little bit of groundwork because dunking on a bad editorial was probably like the fun half of what I wanted to do in this episode. The second half is sort of unpacking newspapers a little bit, where they exist in sort of the American paradigm and in the American mind, and what that means in this current moment, and also what it means about how we think about truth and how truth is shaped in America. And it's obviously way different than it was in the 90s even, and certainly in the 30s and the 20s and the teens. And the last time there was a, a global pandemic in 1918, when the paper in question was actually still controlled by the same family. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. But there's still a lot of inherent sort of truth, the truth of a community or the truth of a nation bound up into its newspapers, both its reporting, right? The objective, quote unquote, part of a newspaper and also its editorial page, the opinion side of things. So I think it's really, really important to sort of maybe actually work outside in, like start with a really bad, ill-considered, ill-conceived editorial, look a little bit at why it maybe was so ill-conceived and ill-considered, and then also unpack then further what it means about 
truth in Spokane, Washington, and maybe truth in America. Okay, so generally when you have an unsigned editorial like the one that was in the Spokesman Review, this thing that we just read, we just got done dunking on, it's uh, written by the editorial board. And traditionally, the editorial board was made up of a group of people. Sometimes it was reporters, sometimes it was editors. Usually it includes the publisher, other people on the business side of the newspaper. But it was a way of sort of speaking with an authorial, authoritative voice from the perspective of the newspaper. And... I think the uh, extension was then it would also serve as the voice of a community, right? We are, as the newspaper men, you know, emphasis men, (laughs) especially historically, but um, as newspaper people, the people who are working every day to just bring you the facts, nothing but the facts, we have a unique position in the community to also offer this opinion. And we're doing that as a paper, right? That's obviously... That's a very weighty thing to do. And as a result, editorial boards were made up of a group of people. So it was super funny to find out about this editorial, like right after it was published online, when the former opinion editor of the paper who uh, quote unquote retired was offered a buyout and left because that's what happens periodically is when newspapers need to downsize because of the economic conditions of journalism. They offer people buyouts and they go, they retire early. Basically he takes to Twitter as one does and says, you know, just a, your periodic reminder that I no longer work on the editorial board. I'm no longer writing these editorials. It was like, wow, my man's throwing shade on his former paper must be pretty bad. And sort of hints that this wasn't just a single bad take, that it was uh, something of a pattern, right? Periodic reminder. I am no longer writing editorials. That leads to the obvious question, okay, cool, who is writing editorials? Apparently, somewhat recently, or certainly in in this guy Gary Crook's tenure at the paper, there were as many as 12 people coming together and writing these editorials, these editorials on behalf of the spokesman. Now there's apparently one, and it's been that way since Gary left. Gary left as the most recent and maybe final opinion editor of the Spokesman Review. The only person remaining on the editorial board, as I hinted at in my little my little skit, is the publisher, Stacey Coles. So now rather than having a, you know, somewhat diverse, diverse for a newsroom group of people working together to come up with an opinion that is measured, we have the voice of one man. That doesn't mean he writes every single one of these unsigned editorials. There's a rumor that he just farms it out to, you know, I'm, I'm imagining here, I'm guessing, you know, some first year grad student from a uh, libertarian sinkhole like George Mason University or something. There are also websites, and I find this really, really hilarious, that will like provide you an opinion in under an hour for whatever take you need made. <laughs> hilarious. So he doesn't write all of these necessarily, but he is the only person as the sole person left on the editorial board signing off on the content. Whether he wrote it or not, this is his editorial, period. And judging by the reaction of some of my friends who are still in the newsroom, yeah, very much his and his alone. Okay, cool. So who is this guy? Stacy Coles. He's the scion of the Coles family who owns a metric ton of some of the most important businesses and properties in Spokane. And Stacy, along with his sister Betsy, sort of divvied up the empire and run it. Not just the newspaper, but I think every single NBC affiliate from the Tri-Cities to Missoula, Montana. Uh, His family also owns uh, River Park Square, 
they were embroiled in the controversy around the River Park Square parking garage that was such a fiasco in the 90s. I'm sure that wasn't awkward for the reporters to report on at all. The redevelopment of the Macy's building, the building that the Apple stores in, basically every top tier retailer in the sort of northwest corner of downtown Spokane rents from a Kohl's property. And full disclosure, so do I in a sense. The uh, nonprofit I was talking about last week that I started with some friends of mine, has a retail storefront in the mall they own. And so there are landlords. And you know what? They've been good landlords. I'm not trying to demonize, and I'm certainly not trying to dehumanize this family. They're people like you and I are. But they have a power in this city that is so deep and so pervasive. And insofar as it's been a power that has existed for generations, this current crop, this current generations of Cole's family can write all the editorials they want worrying about people who live paycheck to paycheck, but they've never experienced it themselves. And I would suggest that they wouldn't know what is best for those groups of people. So the guy that writes this editorial is literally one of the wealthiest people in Spokane and not just nouveau riche. He is from one of the historically wealthiest families, one of the founding families pretty much of Spokane. And he's writing it as though it were the voice of the collective spokesman review. The guys that work so hard to just bring you the facts day in and day out, lunch pail, news gatherers, this is our voice. To some extent, this is the way newspapers have always run. It's an incredibly, incredibly capital intensive enterprise. Very few people have the money or the wherewithal to pull it off. And... On the one hand, it's actually kind of amazing in the current climate where most of media consolidation, where most newspapers got snapped up 10 years ago and are now run by like Mitt Romney, you know, level uh, private equity. It's actually of national significance that our oligarchs still live in the town that they're oligarching. The current editor of the paper, Rob Curley, talks all the time about how the only reason he came to Spokane was because it was a family-run paper, so that when he's fighting for journalistic principles, he can be fighting with a person rather than some faceless, you know, megacorp or private equity. The assumption is that at least that if it's the family that runs the paper, they at least care about the paper and not entirely about the bottom line. Further complicating the narrative is that there still have been, despite that, massive, massive layoffs over the years. And the current size of the newsroom is a fraction of what it was even, say, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So with all of that as prologue, you can understand how a publisher single-handedly controlling the editorial page of a paper complicates the idea that journalism in America is an objective, truth-seeking enterprise. So let's get a little meta for a second. So simultaneously, we have in America this very particular, I think it's toxic, but that's up for debate, this very particular idea that journalism must be objective. It has to be above ideology, which, uh, spoiler alert, is impossible, but it's at least the attempt when you're a reporter is to equally and evenly and dispassionately present both sides. And then that leads to some sort of uh, inherent argument that facts equal truth in some way, or at least you're allowing the audience to decide for themselves. So that's the, the pillar upon which American journalism is founded, right? Sorry, the foundation upon which it's founded, the pillar upon, uh, God, I'm just going to completely abandon that metaphor moving on. 
so the foundation of American journalism is that there is, you know, these are objective uh, fact gatherers uh, who are then presenting the, the literal way of the world to you. Now, let me clarify, I don't want in any way, any way, any way to make it sound like I'm saying rank and file news reporters are like pulling one over on us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they have been trained and we have all been indoctrinated into the school of objective American journalism. I think 99.9 or even 100% of reporters working in that paradigm are doing their absolute best to present both sides as dispassionately as possible. I think they're working their ass off for very little money and lately nothing but public scorn. It's a hell world for journalists who are among, I think, the most virtuous people I know in general. All I'm saying is, despite all the best efforts, it's literally impossible for a human to not come with a little bit of ideological baggage. And I think in trying to pretend that an entire industry can divorce itself from its ideological baggage, we make things really, really hard for ourselves on a good day. And on top of that, then you have editorial pages. So again, I find that problematic in general. It's just that's problematic when you're saying, hey, this newspaper provides facts to let you decide for yourself. And then the opinion page is like, here's an unsigned editorial that is in the authorial voice of basically of God saying, we know we've been just giving you facts all throughout the rest of the paper. Here's another thing that is going to feel maybe kind of like a fact. It's going to, it's going to be an argument, but if you trusted us to bring you facts, then you should trust us with this well-considered, well-reasoned opinion we have about the facts. And then let me just take a second here to clarify uh, what I mean, because the obvious rejoinder to that is going to be like, whoa, so uh, you don't trust people to uh, decide for themselves about individual opinions? No, of course I do. The one sort of international journalistic standard that I'm a little bit more familiar with than others is Italy. And when so I got to live in Italy for a year, which is cool. There was an old guy that ran a pension that I stayed at, and he would every morning sit down with like three or four different papers. And uh, I have very little Italian, so luckily he had some English. One day I asked him, Massimo, like, what are all these papers? And he was like, oh, this is the communist paper. Here's the democratic socialist paper or whatever. Here's the conservative paper. You know, like, here's the Mussolini Times. Here's the Marx Digest. And, you know, I was in my early 20s when I experienced this. I was obviously sort of not a journalist yet and not even really thinking about it, but it was fascinating to me. It was so, so profoundly different than what I had come up with in America. And so I asked him about it and he was like, oh yeah, I mean, I know like I'm reading this reporting from, you know, the Mussolini Times and I'm reading this reporting from the Marx Digest and I know kind of what worldview these journalists are speaking from. And I am actually a, you know, good enough news consumer that I can sort of be like, okay, cool. Here's what the Marxists are saying. Here's what the fascists are saying or whatever, you know? And that struck me as very sane and in stark contrast to the way the press in America presents itself. Because in that situation, the Mussolini Times can say, hey, I think we need full fascism. And then you can say as a reader, it's actually easier to parse the truth. It's easier to make the decision and be like, oh, well, of course the Mussolini Times is going to say full fascism now. Cool. Okay, great. I can weigh that argument more fully on the merits of knowing the sort of underlying and underpinning ideology that that paper is speaking from. 
So what's problematic for me isn't opinions in newspapers next to reported journalism. It's the idea that the journalism portion is somehow objective and without ideological perspective. Then the shine of that perceived objectivity naturally glows onto the editorial page, which I think is dangerous. And I think it's actually what has allowed things like Fox News to call themselves fair and balanced. And we can say, no, that's ter- that's not true, not true at all. But they're like, well, no, this is the journalistic tradition. We're actually more fair and more balanced than everybody else. If we didn't have this expectation of ideological neutrality or the absence of ideology altogether, I don't think we would have gotten ourselves into this position, guys. Uh, what do you mean? What What position? The position where there are roughly two factions in this nation and probably more, and actually it seems like they're splintering and splintering and splintering more and more and more every day, but competing factions that rather than saying, hey, I'm going to argue my point and you can argue your point and we can sort of battle it out on the field of ideas have devolved into those are the reptile people. They are evil and they are lying to you. Uh, our way is the truth and it is the only truth. You can say, well, that comes from an unhinged place. But I also have to think that the framework we created for discourse in this country plays a little bit of a part in the way that discourse has fragmented and fractured. And whatever, it's been going on for decades. It's been going on for 100 years. So it's not like I could have solved that, but it's a problem. And now we have to deal with it. And I think it's a significant part of what's corroding our societal fabric. It's probably the law of unintended consequences that the intent was probably to speak with a unified American or a unified spokenite voice. And what we actually got was insane societal fracture because, of course, not everybody believes the things that the editorial board at a given paper believes. And if what you're saying is, oh, this is the authorial voice, this is the voice of all of us, this is the voice of the people, and most people don't agree with that voice or some percentage of the people don't agree with that voice. So instead they're like, okay, we're just going to share a bunch of shit on the internet. And, uh, all of a sudden one day you can't find Lysol at the supermarket. And then you realize a couple weeks later, that's because people have been injecting it directly into their bodies. And now I'm going to get DMs saying, I can't believe you're uh, arguing for Lysol injectors digest. Uh, and that's not really you know, I mean, I guess if you have a constituency to do that, go for it. But I mean, that's deliberately hyperbolic, obviously. I'm just trying to be funny, but it kind of illustrates the point that if you sort of build a truth framework or, you know, a journalistic and information framework around this idea that there is objective facts completely divorced from ideology, the people that don't agree with whatever underpinning first premises you have are going to be like, no, that's not my truth, bud. And then they're going to go off and find their own truth, uh, even if it's in the recesses of the internet or whatever. Okay, so let me briefly summarize, because I've used facts, I've used truth, and I'm starting to honestly confuse myself a little bit. What I mean is this. Let's think back to that Italian example. The facts would be that there was a rally today in support of full fascism. That could be a fact that I think everybody could agree on, you know, that it, a rally happened. 
And then one paper would say a rally happened today in support of fascism. Everybody that spoke was really smart and they were very good looking. Thank you for reading the Mussolini Times. And then another paper would say a rally happened today. The ideas were absolutely outside the normal human discourse and are dangerous and should be stopped at all costs. And that's the Marx. But honestly, no, that's that should be every other paper, right? Under this paradigm, if it were to exist in America in aggregate, the majority of people would be like, yeah, no, fascism's bad, guys. Instead, what we have is a single journalistic outlet or whatever, tremendous media consolidation in almost every market. And what we get is this sort of attempt at the objective delivery of facts and a sort of balancing of truth value that can actually make minority views seem a lot closer to 50-50 views. So let's get away from our hypothetical fascism example and just talk about climate change, right? There are over 90% of scientists say climate change is real. It's an existential threat. It's happening right now. But the minority voice, which is like, what, 2 3% says, no, it's not. And then despite all the sturm and drong from people who actually know what they're talking about, those get presented as more or less equal assertions of truth. And you can even see the problem this presents for the journalists themselves who feel like they have to be objective. They can't take sides when in fact there is clearly a side to be taken. So this obviously isn't every situation, but in situations where it comes up, the reporters are sort of fighting with one hand behind their back. Meanwhile, the publishers have no such impediment, which is how you have the spokesman review day after day after day, reporting, reporting, reporting about how we need to stay home. And then all of a sudden you get a hot take in the unsigned authorial voice of the newspaper that says, nah, let's just open this thing up as quick as possible, guys. I should say in utter, utter fairness, I don't actually even know how many reporters would agree with my take on this. This was a fight I lost at the paper I used to work at on a fairly regular basis. So I might be right. The foundational principles of American journalism might be right. But what I do know for an absolute fact, and this is one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about throughout this series in various forums, is that once something is entrenched as a foundational thing, it's very hard to unentrench it. This is one of the ways power entrenches itself. Often it starts as a monetary power, a capitalistic power, a power that is able to assert its will by its ability to sort of outspend everything else. And then eventually it becomes a cultural power. And it obviously always doesn't always work in that way. Like hip hop started out as a really powerful cultural force then became a very powerful economic force. But when we're talking about the way power entrenches itself from the top down, it often starts as a wielding of economic power that becomes reinforced as people get used to it as a cultural power, which in our current situation is how you still have people saying, Hey, why don't you guys just pull yourself up by your bootstraps in a situation like we're in now, we're getting anywhere near your bootstraps could kill you. So that was kind of a long walk, but I think it's to a really, really important point. The way that hard power like military power or financial power, capital power uh, gets reinforced by soft power like cultural power and public opinion and public perception. And even though it's probably at the lowest point it's been in any of our lifetimes, journalism is still a profoundly, profoundly strong way of reifying cultural power and plays a really important part in constructing the sort of national ethos that we have in this country, which is why the responsibility that an editorial board has 
whether it's 12 people or a single person, is so vital. It should not be taken lightly, and it should also be held to account. And that's actually really exciting that this editorial in question was held to such strident and strong account, not just from outside the newsroom, but actually from within it. I think that's actually pretty cool. Okay, so with all of that as prologue, the idea that there are ideological underpinnings, there is a way we think about the world that is so ingrained, so pervasive, so deeply rooted that you have to really sort of stop and think, what does it mean to think this way? What does it mean to believe these things about the world? Okay, so let's get into it. Because holy shit, is there some ideology? First thing he says is, how many people should die to restart the economy? There's an implicit value statement in that. Somebody should die. The economy needs bodies. <laughs> not a million, but not zero. Just let that wash over you. Just drink it in. <laughs> and the reason he thinks the economy needs bodies, it's kind of a you know utilitarian argument uh, that is underlined by an even deeper ideology that we'll get in a second here. But, you know, the economy needs bodies. And if we're going to deny the economy bodies for this, well, then what's next? Do we just shut down for every flu season? Do we outlaw automobiles? That's the danger of a slippery slope argument. You just keep going until you find a thing that is so absurd you shouldn't even consider it and then use it to incorrectly sort of cast aspersions on the underlying logic of the thing you're arguing against. To illustrate why this is bad, let's take a really absurd example. Somebody saying, well, if you're saying we shouldn't have fought the war in Iraq because we were lied to about the WMDs and the entire underpinning of the war was wrong, then you're saying we shouldn't have fought the Nazis. It's like if you don't think about it too hard, it can make sense. But then if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. So after that, he talks about how Trump and Inslee have mostly the same plans and that widespread testing is critical to both plans. Uh, the question you would expect him to answer is whether or not the testing in our area is adequate, but he dodges that and he just waves his hand and says, Spokane has made good progress. But then he links, <laughs> he links to a story that just talks about rap rapid testing for healthcare workers and first responders. It's not well widespread testing. So I'm really trying to not infer any ill intent here, but either he didn't read the story closely or he's hoping you don't click the link. He then says contact tracing needs to be implemented, which is implicitly acknowledging that it hasn't happened yet. So it cuts against his argument to reopen as soon as possible. He then says we should look to South Korea as a model for how to keep people safe without destroying the economy. The difference is that South Korea took things very seriously from the very beginning and was testing widely in early March. But despite all that precaution, according to CNN, the South Korean government just reported its worst quarterly downturn since 2009. So they jumped on best practices as quickly as possible, something we didn't do, and their economy is still hit incredibly hard. So to me, the example actually suggests that even when you do everything right, we're part of not just a regional or state or national, but world economy and deciding to open up Spokane County against the advice of actual experts, by the way, isn't going to help if the rest of the world is still shut down. That seems obvious. So with these as your first premises, the only way, the only way you can suggest going back to work as soon as possible is if you are just leaning, hallucinating needle sticking out of your arm on just the purest, most uncut fundamentalist free market ideology, just the really good shit. 
because all the rest of us, and even people that are usually down for some of this, like really down, believe in, you know, the meritocracy, believe in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, even those people, some of those people were not having this editorial, which gives me a little bit of hope that we're piercing the veil and drilling down into this and sort of starting to think about the un- the ideological underpinnings that has completely driven our society for my entire life. And honestly, since the pioneer spirit that led to the founding of cities like Spokane, or maybe not, people were just like, bad take, reconsider. And that's fine too, but that's why I wanted to spend time on it. To just say, you know, if this feels weird to you, whoever you are, if this feels weird to you, there's a reason for it. It feels weird because it is weird. And that's the nature of ideology, especially capitalist ideology. It gets us to believe that the things that just inherently feel right to us are actually wrong. We inherently want to take care of people. We inherently don't want people to die. And again, in the richest country in the history of the world, we absolutely have the power to limit suffering to an extent that our you know, grandparents could only dream of. And yet here's the mouthpiece of the dominant ideology saying the economy needs bodies. Because honestly, under that framework, there's no other way out. The only way out is through. When the boiler shuts off, you just got to stack people up like cordwood and chuck them in until the fire's roaring again. There's that quote from Jefferson. It's just like, oh, God, one of like the sexiest martial, you know, it's like one of the quotes that makes war seem cool. He says, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It's like, God, I know war is evil, but ooh, that's sexy. (laughs) And then, you know, in contrast, the editorial board of the spokesman is saying something that's just kind of sad. It's saying the tree of the American economy, the tree of capitalism must be refreshed as soon as possible with the blood of what? Ben and Jerry's workers. But that's the thing, right? One of the actual good things about the CARES Act was that it's giving an extra 600 bucks a week to people who need to be on unemployment right now. So actually, those frontline workers that he's talking about needing to get back to work because they're living paycheck to paycheck are actually doing better right now on unemployment in many cases than they were doing before. So no, they actually don't need to get back to work, my guy. So who are you really worried about? He's worried about business owners. And why would the... uh, publisher of a newspaper cares so much about getting businesses back open? Well, because he's probably lost a ton of ad revenue. You know, his family also owns those NBC affiliates. So it's not just the newspaper that's bleeding money. It's the other news stations. His family's also one of the biggest landlords, as I mentioned before. So rents are being affected. And that's why if there's a silver lining to this crisis, it's that it's really showing that all of those fundamental first principle truths about, you know, job creators are just kind of lies. It's just kind of bullshit. These aren't job creators, they're wealth havers. And that wealth gets put into various endeavors, it gets put into various things, but new wealth doesn't actually get created without workers. And I'm not saying everybody who owns a business is an aristocrat. And for a lot of small business owners, they were their first worker, right? Like you start a business and it's just you. And that can be brutal. It can be scary. It's certainly risky. But it also kind of proves the point, right? The reason sole proprietors eventually hire people is that one person can only do so much. One person can only produce so much. And then you have to hire other people. And you can be the absolute best boss in the world, but you're still profiting off of someone else's labor. And so while we can 
argue on the values of that or the merits of it as a system, the fairness of it. You can't fundamentally argue the fact that workers create value. And far from contradicting that point, this editorial absolutely reaffirms it in the things not said in the subtext. And if the workers decide, no, we don't want to go out right now because we don't want to risk our lives to line your pockets, there's nothing people like Stacy Coles can do about it. And so that's when this editorial starts feeling not like the, you know, stiff upper lip, brave response of one of the elder statesmen of the job creator community. It feels more like we're at the end of The Wizard of Oz and the curtain's just been pulled back, which I guess means Toto's the coronavirus. But it's revealed that the thing that seemed to have all the power in the entire world has very little. They're just people who have done a very good job of leveraging their wealth to command other people. But if those people say no, then their power goes away. And it's at that point, I don't know about you guys, but like once I start get that whiff of fear, there's a little blood in the water, I just want to push even harder. It's one thing to dunk on an individual editorial. It's another thing to start thinking really deeply and really seriously about the ideological, cultural, society-wide underpinning that made that editorial possible. Because I'm sure a lot of people read that editorial and they were like, yeah, I don't, I like it. I don't like it. I might actually even hate it, but they didn't necessarily think that this is actually a pretty obvious opinion to have. If you're one of the wealthiest people in a given community and you've grown up in an American paradigm, a paradigm, which among other things tells people that they are absolutely worthless if they are not working to the bone and that they maybe don't even deserve to survive unless they are putting their body to toil, to risk, to whatever. But that conversely, money itself, capital itself, is a objective good such that if you have a lot of money, even if it was given to you by birth because your parents were wealthy and your grandparents were wealthy in the case of this particular publisher, you have a moral virtue as part of your birthright. Wealth is a moral virtue in the American paradigm. And so this guy feels perfectly justified using his wealth as a form of moral authority to tell everybody else to get back to work because the American economy needs bodies. And it's one thing to have a totally uh, compassionate human reaction to that, like a lot of people did, just to be like, that's a really gross take, my guy. It's another thing to say it's never cool, never cool. And this is hopefully what we can all unpack together here to be like, what are the deep seated, the pilings driven hundreds of feet down into the foundation of our society that even make that take possible and not just possible, probably dominant, right? We're already, there's been a little bit of a bailout. We've all gotten a, a little bit of our yang bucks like I was talking about. And now the next, the next thing was there was another recently passed, uh, $480 billion extension on the Payroll Protection Act, which is a, a thing designed to bail out small businesses and, and then trickle down to employees. So not the best thing in the world, not the worst thing in the world. But the very next move from the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is to say, okay, cool. Now, if we can't all just pull ourselves back up by our bootstraps at this point, sorry, guys, we should just let states go bankrupt, whatever. 
Now, McConnell also got dunked on pretty hard, mostly by governors of states who would have to live through that sort of thing. But there's this sort of like good take, bad take, surface level, oh, this is horrible, this is okay, this is good, this is bad. I haven't really yet seen a, certainly not a nationwide discussion that our first principles, again, those pilings driven hundreds of feet down to form the foundation of our society, those first principles are inherently immoral. And that's exactly what I'm going to argue here. They are immoral. It is immoral to say, if you are born with wealth, you don't actually have to worry about working a day in your life. We're never going to make a value judgment about you being a layabout, being somebody who has passive income, who makes money off the stock market or who makes money off of rents that you're getting from tenants. But if you are a person working two or three jobs and making the minimum wage, which again, in, in Washington state is 1350. That's the best in the country, but across the border in Idaho is 725. And if you're a tipped worker, I think it's like $3 and 50 cents an hour. If you're a person who is working 40 hours a week, making $3 and 50 cents an hour, plus whatever people feel generous enough to give you at the end of their meal, you are a thousand times, you are incalculably more of an American hero than the publisher of the Spokesman Review. And you know, hot take Baumgarten over here, I believe that 365 days a year. And damn it, right there, I'm even falling victim myself to the ideology I was just talking about. Did you hear what I did? I'm talking about heroism, as though heroism is the prerequisite for salvation. You have to be a heroic person in order to deserve to live. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But I almost instinctively have the gut reaction that when I'm arguing a point, I have to say, oh, wow, you know, the poor, the destitute, the downtrodden, they're knobby-handed sons of toil. They are virtuous. They deserve to be saved. I mean, think about the mental and rhetorical gymnastics we've had to go through in the last month, six weeks, whatever to even get to where we're at, this deeply imperfect place where things aren't great, but at least people are getting helped at the margins. What would it be like instead to just instinctively take care of each other? You know, it's like, I don't know what, <laughs> let's, let's call it the, uh, the party analogy. You're at a party, your beer's empty. You realize you need to go get another drink. You get up and what do you do? You're around friends. You're around people you care about or whatever. And in a superficial level, even the people you don't like very much, right? You go, hey, are you good? You good? You good? Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? Cool. You go spend just a small amount of your evening, you know, getting an extra beer for people, getting some chips, whatever, just refreshing the general well-being of those around you. What would that look like? at a societal level, for us to do that to 320 million people instinctively, if that was our dominant ideology, to just be like, hey, you good, 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 320 million times. Be like, oh, you need healthcare. Oh, you need a little bit more money to help just, you know, lift yourself above a certain level of living, just to help you survive. And maybe we could get so bold as to not just be about survival, but actually, hey, what's going to help you thrive? What's going to help this person thrive? What's going to help that person thrive? What's going to help this community of people thrive? Oh, clean, 
unleaded water, maybe we should just give that whole city of Flint, Michigan, let's just make sure their pipes get taken care of. That's a problem that still hasn't been resolved. And then there would be another step past that. And maybe this step needs to come first. It probably does. Who knows? I actually don't. I'm not thinking about order right now. The other step would be, oh, hey, you, guy who's doing very, very well and has been doing very well for generations. Let's say you're a newspaper publisher, for example. You're doing considerably better orders of magnitude better than the mean. So we're going to ask you to give a little more. Now, right now, there's an argument that goes on where it's like, well, obviously, rich people should pay more. And then the other side's like, no, they shouldn't. They earned that money. And right now, it's not even close who's winning that argument because we value the accretion of wealth and we believe in these property rights that were you know, developed back in England when there was an aristocracy, a landed gentry. And so the preservation of property takes primacy over people's lives. But if you change that underlying ideology, how much harder would it be to make that argument? To be like, no, I, I, my grandpa made this money. It's mine, and I get to keep it. Insert Obama saying, if you like your fortune, you can keep it. That's what I guess I'm thinking about and talking about when I started just wanting to dunk on an editorial and realize that what we really are talking about is something fundamental about our shared moral, ethical framework in America. Because God forbid we just take care of people when there is a disease out there. Just say, hey, you know what, guys? For the time being, it's better if everybody stays home. We're going to make sure that people can at least survive in this period. We don't want anybody dying right now. Nobody should be working. We're going to say, let's go, let's go top, top to bottom. We're going to give people at the bottom checks so that they can, you know, continue buying food and stuff. We're going to then say, hey, you know what? Also rent moratorium for the time being. Oh, and if you're a landlord, we'll probably need to have a whole landlord episode at some point. But if you're a landlord, you know what? We're going to tell your banks to uh, pause those mortgages. And then if you're a bank, you're going to, whatever losses you have, we're going to also take care of those. I think in a more perfect world, we would want to think about ways to decommodify those things maybe permanently, but certainly in the short term to just sort of take the commodity-ness out of people's survival. And of course, I recognize we aren't even close to there yet, but that's why I want to start having these conversations right now while we all remember exactly what this feels like. I think really digging deep into the foundations of just the way we all instinctively think is the next step past what I talked about last week, kicking the door open. This is like wedging your body in the door until enough people can tear the door off the hinges so there's never a door again does that sound good to you because it uh sounds great to me 